Cornetto is, of course, an opera that every single opera house in the world that really values its own reputation wants to have firmly in its stable. Indeed, it appears as number nine with 395 performances around the world in the 2012-13 season of opera. And it was also the ninth most frequently performed in Italy during that year. Heaven knows what those statistics mean, but it does mean that Rigoletto is hugely uh, uh, important. But this is also, and this is something perhaps we sometimes forget about this opera, one of the most radical and indeed the most dangerous operas in the repertoire. For one thing, the play on which it's based, La Roi s'amuse, the king amuses himself, the king's dalliance, translated as you will, by the French romantic playwright Victor Hugo, written in 1832, was political dynamite. Indeed, it was banned for a total of half a century from the stage in France, because the French censors saw Hugo's portrait of François I, François Premier, as a not very veiled portrait of their own current king, Louis-Philippe, uh, the philandering hero of the opera. But it enormously excited Verdi when he was looking for a subject for a commission that had been given to him by the Fenici Opera House in Venice in 1832, just 18 years, therefore, after the only performances of Loisa Muse. He wrote, the subject is grand, it's immense, and there is a character that is one of the greatest creations that the theatre can boast of in any country and in all history. And, of course, that character is the jester, Tribulé, who will eventually become uh, Rigoletto. Uh, and it's perfectly clear that what attracted Verdi and indeed eventually his librettist Piave was that strange mixture of villainy and malice and yet extraordinary tenderness that is at the heart of the character of Rigoletto, particularly the tenderness in relation to his daughter Gilda. This is one of the first great statements of that theme that runs through so much of Verdi's work, the relationship between fathers and daughters of a special kind. For Verdi, Rigoletto became, as, as Tribune becomes in the opera, was a, in a way a Shakespearean hero. And for Verdi to be Shakespearean was to uh, be offer no higher praise. However, if the French censors had been deeply wary of the politics of this play, the Austrian censors were even more wary of what looked like the politics of the opera that Verdi and Piave were writing. Indeed, there were rumours that the Austrian censor, who of course controlled censorship in Venice, uh, it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, they would have it banned as a work that insulted royalty. And there were all sorts of negotiations, all sorts of discussions, with eventually Piave and Verdi retiring to Verdi's home in Buzetta to try to work out a way of uh, accommodating the censors but not compromising what they wanted to do with this piece. So at one stage, the title was changed to La Maledizione, the curse, the curse that Monteroni puts upon uh, Rigoletto that will haunt uh, the jester right the way through to the end of the opera. Eventually, a compromise was agreed between Verdi and Piave and the censors. The opera would be moved back from uh, its original setting to the Renaissance to the court of the Gonzaga family in Mantua. And nobody could be possibly offended because there weren't any Gonzagas alive anymore and in any case the dukedom had died out. So everybody was happy. We were being rude about a dead man. Um, by January 1859, the opera was now formally called Rigoletto. And indeed, it soon emerged that the work itself is just as radical as the subject matter. 
For one thing, we need to remember the hero is the baritone, not the tenor. And the tenor, the Duke of Mantua, may have two of the most winning arias that Verdi ever wrote for a tenor in his early period, Questa Oquella and La Donna Immobile. But he is also an unprincipled serial seducer who abuses his power and abuses women. As for the role of Rigoletto, that calls for a quite new kind of expressivity, perhaps in the way in which it's sung, that is quite as much about character and psychology as it is simply about singing. And yet, within this extraordinary work, Verdi doesn't entirely turn his back on the great tradition, the bel canto tradition, if you like, of his predecessors like Donizetti. So, for Rigoletto's daughter, seduced by the Duke, who she loves as a penniless student, he writes one of his most eloquent and most taxing arias, Caro nome. Well, we've a quartet of guests to explore tonight, Verdi's Rigoletto. Ilona Domrich, who's covering the role of Gilda, tonight is with us, together with Rodrigo de Vera, who's just joined English National Music, Opera's music Department. We're also joined by the theatre historian, Sarah Lenton, but the first of our guests is the producer of this new Rigoletto, here at the Coliseum, Bob Holland, who seems to have worked in just about every single opera house in these islands. Will you please welcome Bob Holland? Well, a very simple starting question. Yeah. What exactly does the producer do in an opera house? That's a, a big question. Um, uh, the, the role of the producer is really to uh, have one single person who has a complete, uh, a complete uh, uh, sort of overview of the entire project. So even though we have technical directors and we have heads of music and people looking after each of those departments, it's to have one person who can tie all those things together. And is there a quite clear demarcation line between the director, in the case tonight, Christopher Alden, and you, the producer? Yeah, I mean, I, I work very closely with the creative team, but Christopher's job is very much to direct the production and, and come up with what you see on stage, and mine is to make sure we can afford it and, uh, and, that, we're, uh, and that we're happy as a company as well, you know. Do you say yes more often than no, I suppose? Yeah, I, I, I try to. It makes my life a lot easier. But, um, uh, yeah, no, occasionally we have to say no. How, how do you become a producer? It, it, there's no real clear path. I, my, my route through was uh, I started working for Glyndebourne uh, and worked in the general director's office there with Anthony Whitworth-Jones, who used to run the company, and, uh, and just got a, a sort of understanding for how the entire process worked. And then I was fortunate enough to get a job at the Royal Opera House and worked there for six years in the company office and uh, then came here to the company office here and... Producers, not every opera company has a producer level. It's a, it's a relatively new thing in the UK. There's a few houses in Europe that have it. Copenhagen have a very strong one. Uh, and it's starting to feed in now a lot more. So it's, it's, it, people come from very sort of different paths. Does it help, as you've been, to have been a company director, in a sense to have seen the whole business of getting something on stage from a number of different dimensions? A company manager, yeah. yeah. I, the company manager role looks after all the day-to-day -day aspects of, uh, of rehearsals. So you have a, a very clear understanding of, of what's going on in the rehearsal room. You know all the departments. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's helped me hugely. And at what stage do you come in on the show? Uh, from the very first day. So John Berry, our artistic director, will have uh, an, an idea for a production. Uh, he will give me uh, a title, uh, a director, and a budget. And then it's very much given over and you put the rest of it together. And how many do you look after here you know, in, a, in a season? Uh, well, in a season, I mean, we have 
14 shows roughly in a season, and there are only two producers, so we split them between us. Um, but then we plan three, four seasons ahead. So I, I have about 14 shows that I'm looking after at the moment. Okay. You've got your director. You've yep. got an opera. Um, you're not responsible for the casting. Nope. Um, uh, presumably, though, you do keep an eye on the, the budget for the design. Indeed. That's a, that's a big part of the process. So, obviously, once we've had uh, what's called the white card model, which is the first time we see what the design is going to look like, we can then go away and work out pretty much whether we can afford all the elements in there. And the process between that and the final model showing, which is about a, a sort of two-month, three-month window, is very much the, the knuckling down and making it come in on budget, which is, which is the difficult bit. And with, with some designers, it's very straightforward because they, they, uh, uh, they help the process. They're very clear about things they can do away with. Some designers are absolutely wed to every last aspect of their production, and that's a difficult process. How do you deal with that? Uh, lots of diplomacy. <laughs> <laughs> There's another view, of course, which is that at the point when you have to say no, uh, or rather you ask someone to rethink something, often the imagination produces a more interesting solution. I, I can agree more with that, actually. And I think, that, I think there's a lot of directors out there who... Uh, there's an argument for if you take away a very realistic set um, and focus a lot more on what they're doing and, and push them to... To, uh, to get across what they want purely through what's being uh, directed on stage, you, you often end up with a more interesting, uh, more interesting production. This is a production, of course, that began life elsewhere. Indeed. It, it, come, it comes to us having been, I think, in Canada and originally in Chicago. Absolutely. Um, what, what changes, in, as you watch it, in the journey from uh, North America to London? Well, very little in this, in that you'll... You'll see tonight, this is an extraordinary set in this production. It's, it's about as big as we could possibly ever do here. And up until it came on stage, our technical director thought it was too big and didn't understand how it was going to fit. And you'll understand that when you see it. It's, it's, um, physically, nothing can really change. It, it, it turns up and that set is what the set is. But Christopher, being around uh, from day one of rehearsals, has, has worked through. He doesn't just put on the show that he did in his last house. He's got... You know, a relatively new cast. Quinn Kelsey obviously did it in, in Toronto. But, um, but new chorus and new actors. And he does start from scratch, and the framework is there, but the relationships between singers and, uh, and everybody on stage is something he, he puts back in rather than just creating what he did before. Seeing the set, I mean, at, at, at the anxiety, presumably, must have been whether the stage could simply bear the weight Absolutely. of what is, um, you're not only four solid, three solid walls, but a roof too. A roof and a, and a very big raked floor as well. It's, it's an ex extraordinarily big show for e and And also we do it up against Peter Grimes um, and Rod Linder, the new Rod Linder. And to do all those three shows at the same time, I mean, one of the most extraordinary things is to see the crew do the changeover from this show into Peter Grimes, because it, it's two vast, vast sets. And that presumably is something else you have to think about with an individual show. How is it going to mesh in with what else has got to be on that stage? Absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a, big, uh, a big factor at ENO, largely because we have such little space backstage that uh, it's a, a giant sliding block puzzle of shows that we can put in. So it might fit on our stage, but it's got to also fit on the side stage when we pack it away at the end of the night. Um, apart from the size of the set, what were the other uh, challenges of, of, of Christopher's production? Um, I think the main challenge of this production, I mean, from an, from an audience point of view, is that it is in one location. So Rigoletto is obviously... Traditionally, uh, it's, in a, it's in a grand hall of a palace, it's in an alleyway, it's by a river, it's all those things. When you see this set, you'll realise 
why it has to stay in, in that room. But uh, that's, uh, I think Christopher's wonderful skill with this show is, is you don't think about that for a minute. Between all the acts and all the scenes, you, you don't think, why are we still in the same space? Because what he's actually doing with the principles and the, the detail of the work within that space, you, you forget about it and you just focus on what those people are doing. We can, of course, as you did, see uh, the production behind us on the screen. So you're getting some preliminary sense of what we're going to see on stage later on. Um, I just wonder, Bob, whether by moving it to the 19th century, I talked earlier about danger and risk. Mm. In a way, it sharpens our sense of just how dangerous this opera is. It doesn't become a comfortable experience. Absolutely not. And, and the other thing that comes across so clearly in this production is just, just how evil the Duke is. And some productions, there are points when you you believe he and Gilda are actually in love, and he's actually a lovely guy. In, in this, there's never a point where you don't think he's one of the nastiest people you've ever met. I, I would take issue with that, but never mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, Bob Holland, thank you very much thank indeed. You. Thank, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be joined now for some music by Ilona Domnich, who, as I said, is covering the role of Gilda, and by Rodrigo de Vera, who's just joined the English National Opera Music Department. Will you please welcome Ilona and Rodrigo? <laughs> Ilona, here's the big question. How innocent is Gilda? You mean um, not guilty? <laughs> <laughs> well, you could put it like that. <laughs> Uh, well, I would say she is um, not experienced, she is curious about life and love, but she doesn't lack the mental capacity to understand deeply uh, life, love, to forgive, and also to make, take responsibilities and to make her own choices, which she makes at the end. So. It is also up to the director to um, make her as innocent or less innocent and up to the audience to interpret it, obviously. But in some productions nowadays, sometimes we're, we're led to believe that she knows exactly what she's doing with the penniless students, as she thinks. <laughs> you don't think that? You think she genuinely falls in love with him? I do think she is ready for him. She wants to escape from her father's house, which is... Um, her need to do, but she's genuinely ready for him, and she um, she falls in love. She gives completely into this uh, beautiful feeling. Um, you know, it's um, it's like discovering her sensuality in the Caronome. It's it's the same same thing. How does she develop psychologically? <laughs> By the end, she's not the same Childa that we met at the beginning, is she? Well, she goes through a roller coaster of emotions, let's put it this way. Um, she um, is locked for the last three months in her father's house. She doesn't know his name. She doesn't know who her mother is. Um, she falls in love with the Duke. She's abducted from her house. She makes love to him. Uh, she witnesses his betrayal. And at the end, she sacrifices her life. She's killed, and she's got still energy to sing the last duet uh, to, um, to promise her father that she would pray for him in heaven. And um, so it's quite a journey. But for me, it's fascinating because um, it reflects uh, the theme, uh, the universal theme almost, you know, the three ages of women, which you can see in Greek mythology, 
Persephone is abducted into the underworld and is reborn when she comes back. And um, if you take a painting by Edward Munch, The Three Ages of Women, the first, the curious, innocent, pure Gilda, put, put, if we put him in Edward Munch, Munch painting, um, the second, she learns what love, passion is, uh, she experiences loss, betrayal, she suffers, she um, you know, she, she, she's completely uh, grows up, she matures. And then the third stage where she is a wise woman, she um, takes responsibility and makes her own choices. I would say it's a symbolic journey in a way because if you think of it, if I would be a modern Gilda, what would I do? Um, would I, uh, I would probably start a new page. I would probably let, let it go and wouldn't suffer and wouldn't uh, let the pain uh, into my life. And I think by uh, sacrificing herself, by dying, she frees herself in a symbolic sense from all these weak men around her. <laughs> There's a radical reading of the opera. Um, a purely practical question. At the end, I mean, do you think that she loves the Duke or does she simply understand, if she's a wise woman, what all this has been about? It's an extraordinary difference. Well, the end could be interpreted in so many ways, obviously, by different directors, but I think for me it's is not so much about her love for the Duke, it's more about her own uh, journey, her own understanding. Uh, because they both, Rigoletto and Duke, they are locked in certain patterns of behavior. Uh, Rigoletto uh, bl blames the entire world for uh, what happens to him. He blames the destiny, uh, he blames the Duke for being his, um, you know, Joker. Uh, he blames um, uh, the Monterone for cursing him. He never takes responsibility for his own actions. And um, Duke is locked in, in a different pattern behavior. He, uh, he wants to come closer to this uh, contentment, to this love by seducing woman one and its turn, and he thinks he's getting closer by seducing each woman, but he's not. He's, every time he seduces a woman, he comes to square one. So I think for her, uh, she, she can't really change both of them. She can't do anything about it, so she's um, deciding to free herself. Uh, and I, I guess in those days, in the status of a woman, uh, you had no other choice but to choose death. You could not... Uh, do it differently. But for us, symbolically, I think it's like a new beginning. How, how taxing is the role vocally? Uh, well, it's connected to the dramatic development, obviously, because Verdi uh, is writing huge chunks of music, um, which I love. But, you know, after duet with, uh, with the Duke, Addio, Addio, go straight into Caronome. It's quite <laughs> difficult. <laughs> Uh, but um, uh, I, I think it's, it's both uh, demanding vocally and dramatically on a similar level. And what are you going to sing for us now? I'm going to sing Caro Nome, ah, which okay. is translated Dearest Name. <laughs> and um, uh, she has an identity 
basically crisis in this opera. She needs to identify with herself and then finally she hears the name, Gualtier Malde. This is the first time that um, she can identify herself with someone. And the irony, of course, is it's not his real name. And it's not his real name.
if you're not careful, then I think we're going to make you sing it all again. <laughs> Thank you. That was absolutely wonderful. Rodrigo de Vera, um, do you think in this opera that Verdi is somehow experimenting with the forms of opera itself? He's, he's pushing, as it, they used to say, the envelope. He's changing things. Um, yeah, actually, Verdi himself used to refer to this opera as revolutionary opera. Um, he was trying to... At the beginning of um, at the first in the first half of the 19th century, um, let's say the um, the operas normally have like um, the first time a main character, main role uh, sings, uh, they usually have like a proper aria in which they develop lots of skills and it's like a show show piece. Um, in case of, for example, Caronome, um, is actually not a show piece of um, soprano virtuosity. It's um, comparing to, I mean, comparing to other other famous arias, soprano arias, um, and actually, it doesn't finish like one. But I have finished like this. But it actually continues because the the coaches come into on stage and they even talk before she actually finishes the the um, the aria, like interrupting her, and that that's not very normal. And if you look at the finales as well. There's no finales like we know in Don Giovanni, like we know in Not the Figaro or something like that. There's no big ensemble of chorus and and and, um, and principles that make the cotton come. Uh, they bring the cotton down. It's not. It's not that. It's. It's really revolutionary in that for that period of. But there are some conventional things. I mean, there's an offstage band uh -huh. that plays for the court, um, and you could, I suppose, argue that, that the Duke's arias have a kind of traditional shape with uh, yes. the opening passage and, and then a concluding cabaletta, a fast passage. Yeah, um, yeah, but again, thanks for saying uh, talking about the Duke because um, his first, his fir the first thing he sings is a dialogue with Borsa, and after that. What he sings is not even an aria. It's like two minutes of, it's two verses of, um, you know, questa um, quella, um, um, which in English is uh, if a woman should happen to catch my eye. Um, yeah, <laughs> I didn't choose it, <laughs> but yeah, um, if you think about it, it's, it's neither ni neither caronome neither questa quella. They're they're proper, you know. It's it's kind of arioso, but it's not an aria. It's not. Uh, it's not an area in which you can see like really a development or um, a showing, uh, showing off uh, a tenor showing off the, his skills. Or uh, in that sense, I think is quite. Uh, he didn't. He didn't. He actually didn't like the singers showing off just because. Um, he he really wanted to um, do his work um, of composing the, the the music, depending on the drama. So uh, he said, I could do that, but. Uh, it, there's no there's no space in this drama to put um, you know a Duke or a Gilda doing oh, oh, oh there's no there's no no point in this opera. The, the most immediate place where all of that is absolutely true, of course, is in the writing for Rigoletto himself. Uh, I mean, this is a quite new, it seems to me, style of vocal writing. Yeah, yeah, um, and I wouldn't say just style. It's, it's a it's a very very exciting, but. In, in a way, very complex um, role, because of what you said about um, psychologically is incredibly complicated um, character as well, because you um, you can see him in so many different faces within the opera, the same opera. Um, we see him as a father. We see him as a joker, taking you know, um, joking about Monterona before he cursed 
curses him. Um, and I think it's not not just um, technically challenging, but really, really dramatically challenging. If you think about <coughs> um, his famous, really, really famous aria, Cortigiani. This is when he curses the courtiers. Yeah, after yeah. They've abducted but if you children. analyze it, it has so many different states of mind within, what, eight minutes? He starts the scene with... Um, Lada, lada, lada. Uh, he's like, he's searching for Gilda. And then when he actually starts the Cortigiani, he's angry. He's angry. He's not searching for anything. He's already angry. He curses them. He's like, you liars, you bastards, you, you, you took my, 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 you know, he, he doesn't say my, my daughter yet. But then, and then suddenly he realizes, oh my God, I'm not going to go anywhere behaving like that. And he starts weeping. And the orchestra does everything for him. Like he puts the tears. He, he I mean, it's amazing. It's am amazing. And so I think it's psychologically really challenging as well for the for the for the singer. Rodrigo, you really wait, wet the appetite for this evening. Thank you very much, and again to Elena too. Thank, Thank you. you both very much. Ladies and gentlemen, our last guest uh, is the theatre historian Sarah Lenton. Will you welcome Sarah Lenton? Sarah, I've, I've sort of suggested why um, uh, Verdi might have been attracted to Victor Hugo's play. Do you have a, a thought as to what he saw in this play? Uh, well, I mean, Hugo was already um, a favourite of his because he'd um, produced the plot for Anani, which was a huge success, his fourth opera. So um, he already thought, good, writes good plays. Um, what he wanted was strong situations. You've got to remember that in a normal opera composer's career, early 19th century through to the middle, you might write 70 operas in your lifetime. And there tended to be a, a kind of pattern to these, these shows. And all the time, Verdi's, as, as you watch his correspondence, you see his intrays getting bigger and bigger. Another libretto, out. Another, no. And it, it, he just throws them out. With Hugo, he can suddenly see something different. Strong situations, which he's always after. And even better, riots on stage, um, censored, forbidden in France, you know, all the, all the ingredients to, 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 to do a really slashing opera in Venice. Is, is, is the sense of the riots in Paris and the, the, the banning by the French censor, is that Verdi's acute sense of wanting to raise the game in terms of getting the audience through the front door? Or is that because Verdi in the end already politically is, as it were, on the liberal wing of the 19th century? It's always very difficult with Verdi. He wore a beard. Now, uh, in the early 19th century, that meant you were deeply radical. If he'd turned up in Naples with that beard, they'd have sent the police around with shaving tackle to get rid of it. So, boom. So we know from the beard we're radical. On the other hand, when the Risorgimento is actually happening and, and Verdi's in France, he's writing pained letters to his agent saying, yes, I know there's a civil war on, but is there any reason why my post isn't getting through? So not completely realistic about what politics is. Uh, of course he's on the liberal side. I think, though, really, uh, the politics is there. It's all very exciting and buzzy. But what he wants is the jester. It's that part that's got him. He's already written Macbeth. He already says he knows Shakespeare by heart and 
everything he seems to say about Shakespeare bears that out. He gets the core of Shakespeare astonishingly well, seeing as he, he read Shakespeare in Italian. And he sees in Rigoletto what he calls a Shakespearean character, a complexity uh, that, that absolutely draws him to him. Is, is it the complexity of a character who is divided within him, uh, against himself? I mean, that's what he clearly found in Macbeth. And is it what he also finds perhaps in Rigoletto? That it is this combination of deep tenderness. I mean, you know, Rodriguez just played us and, and explained the emotional changes in the great aria when he denounces the courtiers. Is it that that he really likes? Uh, there's so many things are working into this. There's Shakespearean range... Uh, so you get many characters on stage all showing different sorts of uh, characteristics. You also get dramatic range. I think we forget how incredibly conservative the Latin was as to what you could put on stage. So you never killed Desdemona with a pillow. That was vulgar. She was stabbed with a dagger like a proper heroine should be. And when the censors objected to Rigoletto, they were just as annoyed by the sack that Gildas ends up in as... Uh, all sorts of other things which you'd expect them to get cross about, like royalty behaving badly. So there's a dramatic um, grit which attracts Verdi immensely. And then when he sees Rigoletto, and this is not a PC age, he himself was astonished with himself. He said, I found in this deformed, hideous creature a hunchback, a soul. And you think... Yes, I think hunchbacks have souls. I don't know that's that's radical as all that, Verdi. But it was in the 19th century. So much so that the original Rigoletto, when he was in the wings on the first night, suddenly felt his hump. Felt what the audience was going to be like, because the word buffone uh, in Italy is still a, an insult, a buffone, a fool. Now, we're used to Jack Point in Yeoman of the Guard. We used to feste in Twelfth Night. We used to tender, loving, wise fools. Not the Italians. That bloke knew that when he got on that stage with that hump... He had a real risk of being held off stage with laughter, and he suddenly couldn't go on. Verdi kicked him onto the stage. And Verdi himself knew what he was doing. Uh, he was putting, apparently, a depraved, deformed person on stage and saying, look, he's got a heart. He, he found that the most buzzy, exciting thing he could do. Do you think it's significant that at one stage that the, 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 the Verdi and Piave think they're going to call this opera La Maledizione, the curse? Or is that simply a, 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 a ploy to the censors? Or does it reflect something about what they're up to? I think it, it reflects uh, the very strong situations we're talking about on stage. And uh, also, I know there's a lot of emotional and psychological truth in this, and I wouldn't... I mean, it is. That's what this show's about. It's about exploring um, some major characters, especially Rigoletto and Gilda on stage, but there is also an amazingly strong area uh, which is melodrama and you just, you've got to know this I mean, Maledizione, the curse and at the end of each act oh god, the old man cursed me and somehow a director's got to find a way that that isn't going to be risable uh, uh, Rigoletto is affected by the curse, he has cursed an old man for objecting to the fact that his daughter's being violated and that father, that old man turns to Rigoletto and curses him. And Rigoletto knows he's as weak as the man cursing him. He, too, has a vulnerable point. He's got a daughter. So, I mean, it binds the show together, but it is incredibly melodramatic. And that is part of the rawness, wouldn't you say, Christopher, of, of some of the score? Um, that the, the melodrama and the strong situations are reflected in the fact that, um, as we were saying, we're not after virtuosity and technical brilliance. We're after, go on, get this drama! 
I'm horrified people. Vedi always cuts. He always gets stronger and rawer. Some people you can't bear it. You know, where's the orchestration? We've, Wagner's happened. What those, what's the matter with you? Um, no. We know we're, we're going to get to the heart of the drama. Yeah, Maledizione sums that up. But you're quite right, of course. What are we going to call this show? At one point, um, well, we won't make a king. We won't make it in France. Let's go somewhere really strange. What about Scotland? Hey, how about this for a title? Clara de Perth. That was what it was going to be called at one point. Clara de Perth. Well, I mean, escape. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Perth. That's what I'm saying. Um, the, the other radical thing, quite apart, as you've just eloquently expressed it, by putting on stage someone who the 19th century would have seen as black, dark, deformed, mm. is, of course, turning that in, the hero into a baritone, not a tenor. Oh, so yeah. that the timbre of the voice, mm. and, and that's still in a good production, should make us, you know, uh, uh, uncomfortable. Verdi um, created uh, the baritone voice in a way. I know if you'd heard an 18th century bass, we'd have heard a lightness, a nimbleness uh, in, a, in the original Don Giovanni, which wouldn't have struck us as quite the... Boris Goodenough sound, if you see what I mean. But when Verdi started not using women as the heroes in shows, so he got rid of the contralto hero, he upped the tenor from a character role to a romantic lead, and suddenly he thinks, oh no, now what have I done? Soprano, tenor, and five basses. Well, this is going to sound a bit samey. So he started insisting basses sung higher. He invented, in a way, this, this higher tone for the natural male voice, the baritone. And with it, he found his Shakespearean ambiguity, to my mind. To me, the baritone voice, this is very personal, is like the horn uh, in the pit. The horn can go any way. It can be a hunting horn. It can be a sinister sound. It can go any way you like a horn. And with the baritone, you've got the golden Verdian baritone, the wonderful singing lyric sound that Verdi can so often produce for a baritone. And then suddenly... He can darken it. And I can't think of any baritone role in Verdi that hasn't got an ambiguity that makes you... Even um, Poser in Don Carlo, uh, the baritone, who's the great friend of Don Carlo, the hero, suddenly Carlo thinks, wait a minute, he's treacherous. He's going the wrong way. And you can hear it in the voice. Ezio in Attila, same sort of treachery. Jean Mon Père in Traviata. Uh, I mean, Dad sings Da Provence, loves his son, kills the heroine, though, doesn't he? And always there's this sense the baritone is ambiguous, golden and beautiful, but can you trust the bugger? He's got all those bottom notes. <laughs> oh, God, this is going on a podcast, isn't it? Never mind. <laughs> do, you, do you think that we should see, as we sit here in the uh, 21st century of the opera, as essentially political? It's about the inequality between men and women, between genders, and indeed it's about the extraordinary tyranny that any kind of ruling elite has uh, at its fingertips should it chooses to exercise it. Oh, it's a closed box. Mantua, or wherever you put it, is a closed box. There's no escape from this particular tyranny. I, I mean, we all can remember, I'm sure, the Jonathan Miller uh, production, which is The Gangsters. But as long as you create a society that's closed, uh, th th then you've got Rigoletto, which is why this great big room is so good. We never get out of that room. Gilda leaves it. We, I wouldn't dream of telling you how, but it's, it's such a brilliant ending, uh, this show, when, when Gilda finds her escape route. But as you've already guessed from the plot, uh, the only escape route she can find is death. And within that box, I'm very interested, uh, especially we were talking about the tenor singing 
almost conventional music. When you get to the quartet, which is one of the great glories of Rigoletto, you get this great uh, Gilda, Maddalena, the Duke, and Rigoletto singing about very different emotions on stage, all together in one quartet. The Duke doesn't know it's a quartet. The Duke is totally autistic. He is an Italian tenor, and he's singing an Italian solo. The fact that some other people have joined him is neither here nor there. And that, too, seems to me what this show is about. You, you can't get away from this bloke. He's just got a one-track mind, a one-single uh, way he's going to live, and he's barred all the exits. I mean, what I, what I was, I'm reminded by, with this production particularly, is that this opera is less, perhaps, about the loss of innocence than, quite simply, how we murder innocence. Ah, uh, well, yeah, I suppose innocence is invariably lost as you just grow up. But it's an act of willful destruction rather than a, you think a, a process of, 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 of mutability. So I, oh, I don't think I can follow you there, Chris. Um, what, what am I thinking here? After all, the villain doesn't actually go out to murder Gilda, he just discards her. And there's the ghastly mistake with the sack at the end, isn't there? I think it's the curse. I think it's maledizione that's, that's, that, that kills off uh, Gilda eventually. Okay. <laughs> um, we've had, we, you and I have seen Rigoletto's uh, set in Kennedy, the Kennedy Brothers, Washington. We've have had Las Vegas with the Rat Pack, um, Planet of the Apes even. Uh, there was Jonathan Miller's production here, which many of us have loved for a long time. Um, nothing, it seems, in the end can do anything uh, to, as it were, chip away the extraordinary musicality of this piece. In the end, this is music drama in the purest sense. Absolutely. Drive, raw, emotional. And yet within that, um, he will surprise you. Uh, you. You heard the Karanome uh, moves into the courtier immediately. He didn't want anyone to clap Karanome. Uh, fortunately, many conductors, and indeed sopranos, rather insist that this would be a moment to catch one's breath. So there is um, all the conventional musicality there, and yet all the time this, play, this, this show just astonishes you. I think the thing that astonishes me the first time I ever saw it was when Rigoletto at last comes on for his solo. I thought, at last? Let's come on, we want a cavatina, please. And a company dresses at Eve. And then he's interrupted by the, 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 the figure in the shadows, the, the assassin. Yeah, it, the musicality, the invention, the drive of this piece is astonishing. And I, my happiest Rigoletto was once I did a, a lecture tour in Australia. I was fed up with Australia. I was fed up with ugh, uh, meat pies and, and everything you can think of. And we ended up in Sydney and they were doing Rigoletto. And I thought, oh, you're kidding. Alan Opie, well, he's English National Opera, I can't believe this. And Tony Legg, uh, also English National Opera, and I thought, oh, I didn't come all the way to Sydney for this. And I sat down and watched Rigoletto, and suddenly Europe and Verdi and ENO and Italian was all ahead of me. And I thought, the first thing I'm doing is going back to England. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have a little time left. If you would like to ask questions of our distinguished guests, please do. There are the usual roving microphones. Put up your hand, catch my eye, and I will direct a microphone to you. Who would like to begin? It's this wonderful English moment in which we all sit on our hands. We don't have hands, the English idea. <laughs> Who would like to ask a question? <laughs> I knew I'd offend someone. <laughs> but, but, but not until you've seen Rigoletto. <laughs> Is there anyone else would like to add? We'll have a question. Yes. Um, just on dates, remind me, uh, 1850, 
Rigoletto written? Uh, is it, no, it's earlier, is it not? 18, it is 1850. 1850, yeah, okay. uh, 1848, um, yep. Europe is in a state of total revolution. How much is Rigoletto a product of uh, 1848? How much is, is Rigoletto a product of 1848? Well, there, there is the political ferment. And uh, up to a point, Verdi was writing it slightly out of the Italian scene, so I was a bit surprised when the censors jumped on him. Uh, obviously... Um, a, a play like Loire s'amuse, the, the king amuses himself by behaving very badly indeed, uh, was, was a red rag to, to, to Verdi and, and he found that very exciting. Um, so yeah, it's part of all that and it's also part of the fact that Europe's in ferment, I've just written Macbeth, I can do anything, I'm a young radical composer, uh, the world's my oyster. And so there's, there's that sense of artistic freedom and, and liberal, um, liberal ideas about music and, and, and shaking up the Italian um, theatre tradition as well as the immediate interest in, a, in the criticism of the ruling classes, which of course this has. How serious though politically is, is Rigoletto? Sarah, can I understand one thing that provoked by really your question, which is of course one needs to remember this is a commission for a very important opera house, mm. La Fenice. So this again is part of Verdi, as it were, you know, again marking his own ascent as an opera composer, uh, I think as well. You see, Anani went on in Venice as well, mm. which was another Hugo play, another play yeah. that created riots and it was again uh, quite a dangerous subject. Uh, I, I Verdi obviously thought he could get away with it. Well, he usually did. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Do we have one last question? Well, some thank yous. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for being a splendidly attentive, thoughtful audience. But our special thanks are reserved to Sarah Lenton, uh, to Ilona Domnich, to Rodrigo de Vera and to Bob Holland. Thank you all very much indeed.